The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we just sang and made a request of you, asking you to reveal your glory. And we note that you are the active party in that sentence. Would you reveal your glory? I am the human preacher, but would you reveal your glory? Would you, Father, Son, and Spirit, proclaim your word? Use my mind and my mouth. But I do not, may we not get confused that I reveal your glory. That is your prerogative. You are God. So we ask you to do it. And we stand as people humble and in need, thankful that we can talk to you And thankful for the fact that as we sang earlier, the King of love sits on the throne. You who reign over us as King are a King of love. Awesome. We love Your reign and we love Your love. We don't love it as we should, but we love it. You have placed that love in us because You first loved us. So we respond to You warm and asking You to stir us and make us warmer. Repentant, asking You to make us more repentant. Grateful, asking You to make us more grateful. The Scriptures say that we are to rejoice in all situations and to pray without ceasing and to be thankful for all things. And so, Father, would You help us to rejoice now and to pray as we listen to Your Word preached and to be thankful for it, even though it may be hard to understand and hard to take. Thank You for Your Word. Glorify God the Father, Son, and Spirit in it, we ask You. Make it clear. Help us to attend to it. Help our minds to focus. And for our good and for Your glory, would You honor Yourself in it. We ask You this in the name of Christ. Amen. We return this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians. And we give our attention to chapter 11. And as we do so, we bump into an incendiary issue. For them and for us, we bump into the issue of gender. How and what men and women are created to be by God when He made us male and female? It's an important question. And it was an important question back in Corinth, which is why they asked, or at least asked it indirectly. It's an important issue for us today. Paul addresses this. And he has an emphasis in here on women. So as, as I'm preaching this morning, I'm, I'm preaching to both, and there is certainly some... some uh, 
in the larger context here, some repeated touching on the issue for men, but there's a leaning here towards women as he talks about gender. And as he does so, as, as I do so this morning, I expect that some of what he says will be kind of hard for us to accept. It runs kind of contrary to our culture, contrary to our flesh. So I want to say that up front and kind of put that out there and acknowledge that this is strong medicine for Corinth. It's strong medicine for us. But we should also say and, and be thankful for the fact that it is medicine. It is given to us by a good God. Given to us for the healing of the nations. One of the many plagues that we suffer under ever since page 3 of the Bible. Page 2 of the Bible, God makes male and female and says, very good. And on page 3 of the Bible, it all falls apart. and has been trouble ever since. And trouble is a nice way of putting it. There's been pain and sorrow and misery across the planet ever since. And what God gives to us, because God is good, and what God gives to us on this is good, meant to heal us. It would be different than what we're used to, but it's meant to heal us. It's good. For His glory and for our good, as He fills us with His Spirit and makes us different, it is a blessing. That's what we look at this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 2 to 16 and then walk back through to clarify some of the details. And there are a number of details here, so I'm not going to be able to touch on everything, but I'm going to try to get some of the main points clarified before making a couple of overarching observations. I'm going to read 2 to 16, but before I do that, I need to make another comment because I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, and if you don't have that version, you can't see my footnote. So a couple of times when I say, as I'm reading... What my text says, wife or husband, my footnote points out, and many of you, if you have the NIV or the NES, you'll note this just right in your text. It's the same word in Greek for husband as it is for man, for wife as it is for woman, very same word. And which way you translate it, translate it is determined by context, and this is not a marriage context. This is not a husband and wife context. He's speaking about gender in general, how men and women should interact with each other, how men and women should be in public worship services, not just husbands and wives. So I'm going to say, as my text says, wife and husband in a couple of different places, but it should read man and woman throughout the whole thing. So with that, let me read verses 2 to 16 from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain their traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. 
For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with their head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16. Verse 2 begins with a, a general commendation that, that is probably meant to kind of be over the next several sections that are talking about worship service items to say that in most things related to the worship service, I'm pleased to see most of you holding to what I taught you. Let's begin on a positive note. However, not on everything. Verse 3, I want to inform you of something. I want you to understand something. Notice here we have, again, an instance where they have asked Paul a specific question and he's going to go to what's behind that question or beneath it to talk about something much larger. If it's understood, then the question they've asked becomes easy. He's starting somewhere different. They asked something like, should women cover their heads when praying and prophesying in the worship service? Some evidently were, some weren't. They're probably referring to what would have been the the common practice in that day of respectable women having long hair, but gathering it all up together, not letting it hang loose like loose women did. And on the other hand, not having it cut short like women who had been shamed by having their hair shaved off would have experienced. You would be shaved to shame you, and of course it would take a while for that to grow out, and so you would carry that with you over time. A number of cultures did this even in the relatively modern times. I remember seeing pictures of post-World War II Europe, women who had been collaborators with the Nazis after the Germans were chased out, shaved. The glory of their femininity cut away as they had sacrificed it already. They'd forfeited it, and they wanted to shame them in public. Something you wouldn't want to do voluntarily. seems that he's referring to that. It seems like that's what they're talking about. Or perhaps they're talking about some sort of a special garment, maybe a prayer shawl worn on the head. He goes back and forth at different places, seeming to talk about a garment, seeming to talk about hair. He's not real clear because that's not really the point. He knows what they did. They know what they did. He's about something else. He wants to address gender itself. We see this as he unfolds it in verse 3. I want you to understand something about lines of authority. That's what he's referring to when he uses the word head. Now, a lot of research has been done on this word head because people have tried to repeatedly tried to wiggle out from underneath of what it means. But in the end, it means what we think it means. It means what we mean when we say the head of state or the department head. When we talk about Christ as the head of the church, it's the one in authority. The one who is the leader, the one who is in charge. 
Verse 3, understand this church, understand this about authority. It's three parallel statements. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. As the NAS and NIV read, there's no word her in there. It's not talking about husbands and wives. Literally, the head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Which is included here to make a very helpful point, as we'll see. So he starts to answer their question by reminding them of the existence of this, of this line or of this chain of authority. This is his, his first general line of discussion. He comes back to it in 7, 8, and 9 where he says this is actually rooted in the, the creation order. How men and women were created. And this first general line of discussion is the repeated reason that he touches on to answer their their direct question, the second line of discussion, what about the head coverings? Should women cover their heads when they pray and prophesy in the church? Now, when we get to chapter 14, we're going to talk more about what prophecy actually is. It's dealt with in greater detail in in later chapters. It's just touched on here. But for this morning, for purposes of this morning, let me give a real brief definition without proving it. Prophecy... You should think of prophecy here in this time period as the speaking of a message that is believed to be from God. I say believed to be because it needs to be evaluated. Believed to be from God, given for the encouragement and for the building up of the church. It's different than what we read about Old Testament prophecy. That is equated with the authoritative word of God to be obeyed. Without question, from a prophet. It's a difference in the Old and New Testament times. That'll, that'll suffice for this morning. There are many restrictions and limits placed on this sort of prophecy, as we'll see. But it's worth noting here the assumption of the passage. It is assumed that women will prophesy and that women will pray in public in the church. Not can they, how should they? From Acts 2, from Pentecost, what was the forecast of of the time of the Messiah? When Messiah comes, the Holy Spirit will be poured out and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Philip in the book of Acts had four daughters who prophesied. The church assumed this. It is the way it is. The question is, how? It's important as we talk about this headship, this authority, and we see men and women, it's important to keep in mind that God has always assumed that God would speak to the church through women. Beneath headship. Difficult to sort out. It's worth noting. How should it be done is the question. Verses 4 and following, he says that the two genders should do it in different ways to reflect the different reality from verse 3. And the second line, the head covering, the second line of discussion should be different to reflect the first line of discussion, the reality of headship in the creation order. Man, the head of woman. Now, this, this can get confusing, partly because he cycles back and forth between different statements, but I think it's helpful to note these two general lines of discussion, one of which is foundational, which is rooted in creation and is about who we are as gender, and the other which is an application of and a display of the first one. 
men and women displayed in a certain way. Keeping these two things in mind helps us sort it out. He, he touches on this one in 3 and then 7, 8, 9. He comes back to it in, in the latter part, 13 to 15, about our natures, what we sense in us, about the difference between men and women. And he cycles back repeatedly to how we should cover our heads, how we should have, men ought not have, and verse 10, women ought to have authority on their heads. These two lines of discussion are essentially how the passage breaks down, and those are going to be my two observations. I'm going to make two observations about the central point of this passage, which I'm going to express in this sentence. So here's the main point I'm working towards this morning. God made us male and female. And in the church, He is restoring that good design for our good and for His glory. God made us male and female. And He's restoring that in the church. So I'm going to make two observations, as I said. And the first one is about this first line of discussion, the creation. Here's my first point. There is designed headship in the creation order for the glory of God and for the good of the creation. And as an aside, I tack that phrase on to all kinds of stuff. For the glory of God and for the good of people. For the glory of God and for the good of the church. For the glory of God and for the good of the creation order. Because I, I want to be constantly reminding us of something. They are not two separate things. The glory of God and our good. They are together. And God has done something here in, in the creation that glorifies Him and is good for us. So we should start this by saying, I know that God who is good always is doing good. So what is it in this passage? It should be our posture as we come to it. And we find that He has designed headship in the creation order. Verse 3 launches right into it. The head of every man is Christ. And as we think about this to understand what is headship, we think about this first. The head of every man is Christ. All of us, men and women both, we all have experienced this because the Bible also says that the head of the church is Christ. So, in a, in a different way, he's the head of every single one of us. So you all have experienced the headship of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you've experienced His headship. And so I, I want to ask you: Is it not good? No, it is. Too often we, we, we start talking about headship or authority and we have a negative feeling. We shouldn't. There's nothing inherently bad about authority. It's twisted in this world, sure. That we shouldn't come at it with a bias against it, especially when we first think about the headship of Christ. Oh, that is a good thing. Headship. It is necessary for the creation. Authority is necessary for us as human beings. And God's design of headship as seen in Christ, seen in Christ, is not a bossiness or a, or a dictatorship. As we take our cue from Christ, the model, we see that, that a head is a leader, an authority, 
given to guide, to create structure, to provide purpose, to provide provision, to provide protection, to guide, to lift up, to build, to bless. So often in our world, the guy in charge is there for himself. That is not the case in the Bible. Christ as head over the church. Think of what that is. Jesus. He is king. And he himself took the initiative. We didn't obligate him. He himself took the initiative to step in, looking at you, knowing your need, stepped in to address it by his own power, giving up his own life, Surrendering all of his own privileges so as to bless you, your head, servant to you, washing your feet, washing your soul, giving you that which you could not have but which you most desperately needed. The good shepherd standing between the sheep and their enemy, your head. He did not stand behind and say, go. He said, stand here, I will go. Your head. Your commander, your authority. Your leader. Your deliverer, your lover, your friend. Headship. Christ as head of the church, as head of man. Headship then, modeled on Christ to take the initiative to lead and shepherd, that's another word for lead, and guide towards God's assigned task in a way that is dependent upon God, honors God and blesses the people of God like Christ. He is a wonderful head, humble in His authority. Other serving in his leadership. And that all expects a response from the ones beneath, a receiving of that, an accepting of it, and not a setting aside of it and a saying, I will be my own deliverer and provider and protector, guide and power. I'll be my own head. No, not that. An acceptance of it, an embracing of it, a submitting to it, a responding to it. Which is the model of what it means for man to be head of woman. Just like that. Just that kind of leadership. Just that kind of headship that laying down one's life for the led one. And a response to it that says, I will receive it, I will respect it, I will honor it, and I will not set it aside, do it myself. Now, of course, we could get into a lot of details about what constitutes a man, what constitutes a woman. How old do you have to be? How do you respond to all kinds of different men? Because it's different for a husband, if you're, if you're a woman responding to a husband, than it is different if you're a total stranger. But in in all of this, there is a gender generality that says man as head over woman means general things. 
women and children first is because they are women. It's not my wife and kids first. It's all women first into the lifeboats. We hold doors for women because they are women, not because it's just my wife. Men go to war because they are men. Men go to war. Men go to war because they are men. Not women. Men go to work because they are men. Men. Not women. Gender generalities are knit into the creation, modeled on Christ. Notice one more important thing at the end of verse 3. Modeled on God the Father and God the Son. Not just Christ and humans. The last phrase of verse 3, the head of Christ is God. This is very important. And when he talks about God as distinct from Christ, like, like throughout all the New Testament, he means God the Father as distinct from God the Son. And he says, even in the Trinity itself, God the Father is head of God the Son. You see it in the names, Father and Son. It's obvious why he chooses those terms to communicate something to us. We see it in Jesus' life on earth. He's perfectly obedient and submissive. He does only what the Father tells him. This is in the Trinity itself, which tells us a couple of things. Think about this. I find this fascinating. The idea of headship is not related to the existence of sin. Now, we desperately need headship here on this planet because without it, chaos and wickedness results immediately. When everybody does what is right in his own eyes, trouble follows. This tells us that's not where headship comes from. Headship exists in the Trinity itself, in God. Now, of course, 7, 8, 9 talk about how the ordering of creation is a part of the creation before the fall happens. Genesis 2, he made woman from man, he made woman for man. That's what it says in 8 and 9. But this tells us that also he didn't just do that making authority because he knew sin was going to happen. It's in the Trinity itself. And so when he makes man the head of woman and puts us in the creation to live that out, he's doing something. He's imaging himself into the creation. This is part of the revealing of the glory of God. And I'm getting theological here. You've got to think about this because God is awesome. I, I hope that you care to think about these things. God is concerned to reveal something in His very core being here on the earth. How men and women interact one head over the other. To the glory of God. So how you live out your gender is not just about you. It's about reflecting God here. About glorifying God. About revealing God. And it's for your good too. But it's for the glory of God.
The fact that it's in the Trinity tells us that. And secondly, the fact that headship is in the Trinity itself tells us something else very important. God the Son is how much God? 50%? Or 100%? 100%. It's part of the beauty of the Trinity. There is only one true God. How many persons is that one true God? Three. Name them. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. All fully God. So when we look into the Trinity and we find God the Father as head over God the Son, we right away know that headship has zero to do with being, value, dignity, importance, or worth. Get that. Because this is often a stumbling block for us. If I'm beneath Him or He's above me, that must mean that He's most important. The only reason we think that is because that's how we work in the world. That is not what God means. Ask God the Father. Should we downplay God the Son and not think very much of Him because you're the head? By no means. I have exalted this one so that at His name every knee should bow and every tongue confess and everyone worship Him as God. And yet He is the submitted one throughout all of eternity. He is fully God in His being. Fully, equally worthy of worship. And He is the submitted one. So we are not talking about dignity, value, worth. We're just talking about role. And we are talking about role. It's real. It's authority. Headship. Comes back to this in 7, 8, and 9. Men, the direct image and glory of God, but woman, the glory of man. There it is again. Now, of course, in another context, as I was just talking about, together, male and female, Genesis 1, we are in the image of God. And of course, men and women both glorify God. However, there is something unique. There is a chain And he proves it in 8 and 9 from creation. God made man directly and made woman from man. God made man directly and gave him a job and gave him woman as a helper. There is a difference in the Scriptures before the fall rooted in the Trinity. There is a difference. And we should say, praise God. Praise God. We shouldn't say, ooh. Praise God. It's good. It's great. It's awesome. Because all that he does is awesome. We have to acknowledge, though, that this is hard. Because why I said we shouldn't have the ooh, uh, plenty of us probably are. And plenty of people around will. Because we all fully know that ever since page 3, this has all been messed up. It has been. This is plainly, simply God's Word about God's design and God's intention, but as soon as you step out in the world, you read the newspaper or you look at your own life, you see this is messed up. And that might be a nice way of putting it. So what are we supposed to do with this? And obviously, one option is what some people do is just outright reject it or work very hard at changing it. 
I plead with you, don't do that. Keep in mind that God is good and has never devised evil for you. Never. He's never devised evil for you. Fallen human beings do. And there are all kinds of wicked distortions, but God never devises evil for you. And it may be hard to believe this, but I think that I think most, if not all of us, have at times caught a little glimpse of what this might perhaps possibly look like when it works right. When you've lived out your femininity or your masculinity, and you've lived it out and, and it has been right and good. There's a spectrum of what is appropriate. Femininity is not always one way. There's a spectrum, and there's a spectrum of masculinity. It's not always one way. But I think most of us, if not every single one of us, have lived that in some point and have felt, this is right. There's something whole and real about this that I've been dodging. But if you've never experienced that, God's Word says this is what He made, and it's what He intends to remake by His Spirit in us in you and in us, the church. Don't reject it. It's out of step with the culture, out of step with what you've always grown up with and been taught. Yes, maybe that's because the culture and what you've been taught is wrong. God's Word said it is. Trust Him. The obvious call to all of us, men and women, young and old, is to understand God's design and get on board with the fixing process. In our corporate entity here and individually in in you, in your heart. So I got to say a word to men. This this is leaning towards women, but I got to say a word to men. Embrace your headship like I was talking about it. Not in some sort of of an ogre-like way. Embrace that kind of Christ-like Trinity-based headship. With a mindset that says, this, this one that I am head over is in no way an inferior being, God the Father, God the Son, and I am yet called to, I'm assigned the task of, not because I'm better or superior, but because God picked me and then equipped me in my gender makeup, I'm called to lay down my life to bless these ones. I go to work, I go to war, I hold the door. Embrace that and be a blessing. Much of we got to be honest, much of the problem that women have with stuff like this is because of the sin of men. So repent. If that's you, repent. Repent. But women, this passage is mostly pointed at you because you're the ones considering how am I supposed to carry myself in a public worship service? What am I supposed to do? That's the heart of the question. How am I to live in life honoring men, recognizing and reflecting and affirming gender headship as is appropriate? What do I do in the workplace? How do I do in my family? It's different. Well, some of the details we'll come to in the next point, but the first point right here is the attitudinal embracing. 
The point I'm working on here is that there is in the creation order this authority breakdown outline. So the, the question really is, do you embrace it in your heart, yes or no? And assuming you want to, how can you come to? What we do about it, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, I think. But do you embrace it in your heart? Because the next point's irrelevant if you don't. No point in trying to figure out how to display it if you don't believe it and don't want it. How? Well, assuming you want to embrace it, I would suggest that that involves experiencing the headship of Jesus over your own soul first. It it can't come directly by interacting with the male. It has to come first by seeing the headship of Jesus and recognizing that you are beneath His headship. Not to diminish the situation, but if you think about, and we've embarked into this realm recently ourselves, you have siblings, one of which is old enough to kind of babysit, and you leave the siblings at home as the parents go out. Well, they don't like what's going on. They don't like the authority of the, of the younger one. They realize, uh, but I'm, I have to play along with this. When mom and dad come home, it'll be sorted out. That's reckoning with the headship of sibling by thinking I'm actually under the headship of mom and dad. And they'll sort things out. In a similar way, for you to reckon with the headship of male, you have to first see yourself under the headship of Christ and recognize His headship does you no wrong, never fails. And He is not handcuffed to, well, I would prefer to do something else, but the one that's between me and you is behaving in a certain way, and I really can't do anything about that. I delegated. Not the case. He has you and He holds you. He loves you and He cares for you. He will not forsake you, will not abandon you. As an aside, if you are in some sort of of a wicked or abusive situation, talk to me about that. What I'm talking about is the general everyday in and out fear of if I embrace this and do not stand on my own two feet to make my own life, I will in some way be lost. Lost in life, lost in the workplace, just lost. That, that's the thing I'm talking about. If there's something more serious going on with you, Talk to me about that. Understand? To deal with the day-in, day-out fear of what would it be like to embrace, submit to, love, and honor a gender generality of headship. Run to Jesus and see His headship as good for you. And recognize along with 1 Peter that even if it turns up that you have to suffer for doing right, you will be blessed for that. God will hold you, will bestow upon you favor and honor, as Psalm 84 says. Trust Him. Christ can and will be enough for you, and He can and will give you power in your heart to trust Him. To say no to the fear that rises up in you about seeing yourself under male. 
to give you power to defeat the sin in you that wants, just because you're a human being, wants to be autonomous, wants to stand on your own. None of us like authority. He'll be there for you. Go to Him. Trust Him. God has put into the creation order headship. Man, male, the head over female. Female, made from male. Female, made for male. Verses 8 and 9. So, what do we do about that? This moves to the second observation. God's designed headship must be displayed in the church. That's the whole point of the head covering discussion. So the first line of conversation about there's this reality, and the second line, how do we display that reality? I'm, I'm on the second one now. must be a way of displaying the reality of, of headship of male over female and headship of Christ over male in a way that says not only do we just display it, but we're good with it. We rest in it. We embrace it. We love it. We are, we are whole and full and alive and joyful in it. It must be shown by male and female. The church and I'm saying this carefully, listen, the church must display the order of headship in a noticeable way so that people in the culture and even the angels, verse 10, can detect it and realize it. It has to be noticeable. To see something different. People can see it and understand what we're saying. Well, what is that for us? Note this. If I'm going to tell you a joke, I tell it, and then I have to explain that was the punchline, and here's why that was funny, it wasn't. Right? Right? If I have a symbol for something and it takes me longer to explain why this is a good symbol, why this effectively symbolizes other thing, it takes me longer to explain that than it does to explain the thing symbolized. This is a bad symbol. It's an ineffective symbol. You've all been in settings, probably in workplaces, where somebody's come up with the newest, greatest idea, way to graphically represent some sort of thing, and it takes you a year to explain it, and you think, this is, this is just wrong. What's the point? And please understand, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm trying to be what I think is accurate here. So, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. But if we were to take this passage in a certain way and attempt to walk down the second path and display the truth in a certain way, and somebody were to walk in and say, as I have heard said, looking at somebody's head, what's with the doily? And you have to say, it's not a doily. What is it? It's a head covering. What's that? Something that covers my head. Why? Well, I'm displaying that I am in submission to God's design of headship, and it shows that I'm okay with it and good with it and delight in it. It does? How? That's a bad symbol. 
because it does not communicate the message in our culture today. In the majority American culture. Or, or let me change it a little bit. What if maybe he's not talking about some sort of a garment. Maybe he's talking about hair. And if somebody were to walk up to a woman in church here and say, have you ever thought about kind of wearing your hair long? You've got such nice natural curls. I think it'd look really good. No, then you would think that I was a prostitute. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> that would not have occurred to me. Because that doesn't communicate that in our culture. Back then it would have. Wear your hair down, you wear it loose. Sends a message. Here it does not. My point. The symbols in this passage do not communicate in our majority American culture today the message that they are intended to communicate and in fact may miscommunicate the message intended are not likely to say to anybody anything about male headship, but are probably going to say something about extreme conservatism totally separate from gender. Now, I can't say, I say majority American culture because I can't say there, there are some places where this does communicate. And perhaps some of us from other cultures in other countries, maybe it does communicate in that culture. If it sends a message, doing it or not doing it sends a message, then think about this differently. But you understand the point. We have to communicate the message in a way that communicates the message. And if it takes us longer to explain the symbol than it does the message, we've picked a poor symbol. So in case you're wondering, no, we shouldn't have women wear some particular garment or some particular hairstyle. Unless you are from a particular, I would say, a subculture of America or another culture from somewhere else that just speaks differently, then take it differently. So, there are, though, ways that we in our culture communicate an acceptance or rejection of the basic message in this passage. A couple of them came to my mind, but I don't think they're absolutes. I'll, I'll, I'll throw some out and help you think about some things. I think generally what we're looking at is something that says, here is a headship that's designed to be over me, to shepherd me, to protect me and provide for me. No, I will stand on my own two feet. Something that says that or the opposite of that, yes, I will stand under this and embrace it. I tie to words in my mind words like modest and humble versus flaunt and show. I pick those words because they can be attached to attire and general physical demeanor, which seems to be kind of the flavor of this passage. You can see in your mind Humble and modest or flaunt and show. Flaunt and show is saying, I will say, look at me. Humble and modest says, I will attempt to blend in. Not look at me. I think that fits with some attire things. You can also wear attire designed to look masculine. We all know when we see it. 
That's saying something. It's communicating a message. I am not comfortable with femininity. I want masculinity. I want to be known as that, seen as that. Maybe in a a less physical way, in our culture, not taking a husband's last name or hyphenating your last name often communicates something. A desire to stand as your own person. To not be totally subsumed under husband. Maybe in our church it's just a a general acceptance or chafing at the idea of male elders and male gospel community leaders. Just realizing I'm never going to be an elder because I'm a woman and I'm totally fine with that. Or, I'm not. But I say these things as suggestions to think about because I can't say they're absolutes. Let me give you a counterexample. The the hyphenated name thing. I, I can envision in my mind a woman who is a single woman and who is a medical doctor. Practice is known, has published in research journals under her maiden name, and gets married, and then she and her husband decide, I'm going to continue to practice medicine. But for the sake of all of this this body of information, I don't want my name lost and separated from that so that people think I'm not that person. I'm going to keep my name in my last name, but in no way whatsoever did it occur to her that I'm separating from or coming out from underneath of my husband. I can see that. The point I want to make is that ultimately this all rests in the heart. Not just in behavior. The heart will influence your behavior. It will influence your attire. It will influence how you live. And it will be noticed by people and by angels who draw near. And it must be the glory of God is at stake and the good of, in this case, other people is at stake. Verse 10 talks about for the sake of the angels. What's going on there, I'm persuaded, is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 3.10 where the, the church is set up. The church is like a living, breathing, visual aid. Ephesians 3.10, Paul says that the manifold wisdom of God is made known in the church to the rulers and powers in the heavenly places, spiritual beings. Some of whom are probably demons, some of whom are angels. The wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God is made known in this living visual aid, the church. As the angels watch it, they say, wow. Look at that. Look what our God has done. I know full well, says one angel to the other, that these people do not deal well with authority. And that woman and man, since the very beginning, thousands of years ago, have been in a turmoil. But in this place, what happens right here is that they get along well. They love it. They embrace it. They live in it. And I can tell because of this and that and the other. How did that happen? The other angel says, it doesn't come naturally. That only comes by the grace of God. When He saved them, He put His Spirit in them and has moved them and they are different. It is due to Him and to His gracious power changing them. Praise be to Him. And to the world around, 
They look at us, and as we walk, think about this. You open up any life or any paper, and there is something about men and women in conflict, sometimes in brutal conflict, sometimes in just slight disarray. And if there was a place on earth where that was being reversed and fixed, not just ignored, not just tamped down, but undone, people would find fresh air and life there. That is what the church is to be. God never threw away the original plan and started over. He is renewing. I think of the re, redeeming, renewing. He's reclaiming the original. He's fixing it in us. For our good, for His glory, and for their good out there. There is much on the line for us to live out our genders properly. Male as head over female, as a glorious Christ-like blesser and giver and leader and defender and provider. Of your own wife, man, yes, but men of women. For women to embrace that, to accept it and to receive it and walk in union with it will testify to the goodness of our triune God in a very unique and very powerful way in the heart for people who are looking for that. And it will bless you too. All to the glory of God. He has knit into the creation order male and female and as He is reclaiming it for His glory and for our good and for the healing of all the nations. Let me pray. God, would You do this? God, would You do this? think about my own role in this as, as a man and my brothers I pray that you would give us a spirit of repentance where needed and of a desire to pick up the mantle and to walk as humble heads laying down our lives as Christ our head did And for my sisters here, I pray that You would give grace to them to see You as head over the whole thing. To find strength in You then to walk happy. To walk rejoicing under the headship of men. Sort it out properly. It gets complicated. Sort out how to do it exactly in in the hundreds of different situations we're in. But Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.